0: You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. WNYC Studios is brought to you by Z-Biotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Z-Biotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Z-Biotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Z-Biotics before your first drink. Drink responsibly and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day.
1: Do you have any opinions on the potential exodus of people from Twitter? I think that as long as Twitter is kind of the biggest platform of that nature, then people probably won't leave in masses, you know?
0: I'm probably going to
2: delete my fake account that I don't use anyway <laughs> to take a stand.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think it sucks that they let Trump back on there, but Twitter's full of news, dude, and it's like I get to be a different person on there. It's a place for me to spy on my ex boyfriends and on my current ones. <laughs> yeah, she
3: I had Twitter when I was a lot younger in middle school and high school, and I used it just to follow people I didn't really know. And I don't know, I think I still get that same kind of community feel from, from Instagram and other forms of social media too.
4: The way that it's been going with the new CEO, I think I'm just gonna go ahead and fully go to TikTok.
3: It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And friends, I'm old enough to remember the world before Twitter. To remember that political conversation could get pretty nasty and toxic without the help of social media. And to remember how flat so much of the public conversation felt, having been filtered through the shared assumptions of its overly white, overly straight, overly upper-middle-class gatekeepers. But also, I'm old enough to remember how reluctant I was to join a party that pretty quickly felt like an awful lot of shouting, Uh, and by people who'd later convince that they wish they'd kind of thought that through before they put it on blast for everybody to hear. I'm still, I must confess, some timey about Twitter itself. I'm not sure I'd be on there if it wasn't for my work as a journalist, and certainly count me among those considering logging off for good these days. More than a million users have reportedly done so since Elon Musk took over. And last week, a study from a collection of civil society groups, including the Center for Countering Digital Hate, tracked a sharp increase in anti-Black, anti-gay, and anti-Semitic slurs since Musk took over. Seems to be going from bad to worse. All of which is to say that for a platform in which one encounters so much certainty, there is a particularly uncertain moment right now for many people on the Bird app. And if you are among those who have found joy on Twitter, I want to hear from you now. Have you decided to stay, or are you getting out? And either way, why? And what do you think you'll lose if Twitter goes away altogether? And I'm joined first by someone who has experienced it all on Twitter. The good, the bad, and the very, very ugly. George M. Johnson is author of the best-selling memoir, All Boys Aren't Blue, and on Twitter with 90-something thousand followers. George, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
3: So when we decided to have this conversation, we chose not to speak with someone who is a quote-unquote expert on social media, like you know, a researcher or one of the many smart, awesome people who are studying the platform and its evolution. We wanted to talk with notable people like yourself who have clearly found something valuable in the space in spite of it all. Uh, and you're a striking example of that, George, I have to say. So I want to start our conversation with the good for you, the, the story of why you have been there, why you remain there. Um, I mentioned that I think uh, about how flat the public conversation was for me before Twitter. Um, You are someone who has been very open about your experience as a black queer person, um, as part of your public life. Um, That's drawn some ugliness. We're going to get to that. But focusing for a beat again on the good. Do you think the, the platform played a meaningful role for you in finding that kind of space in the public conversation as your unapologetic self?
1: Absolutely. Uh, Twitter gave me a voice um, many, many years ago. Uh, It was a a great outlet for many of us who were, um, I think, coming into activism, um, you know, needing to find some space where we could, uh, one, build community, because I do think that Twitter was a great way for many of us to build community and camaraderie around one another, Um, but it was also uh, an outlet, uh, I don't want to say against mainstream media, but what I will say is when stories were not being covered by mainstream media, mm-hmm. uh, Twitter allowed us the space to say, hey, this thing is happening and no one's reporting on it. And I feel like we constantly were saying like, hey, this thing is happening and no one's reporting on it. And you know, slowly but surely, uh, many of us, I became a journalist, um, a few years after starting on Twitter, but many of us uh, were starting to get opportunities to start to report on stories that uh, specifically from Black community, from queer community, from Black queer community uh, that weren't going uh, noticed. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I also think Twitter is where I found like a lot of friends, uh, Mm -hmm. like a lot of online friends are now real life friends and some of them are like really really in my circle now um and so i think twitter was one of those spaces like where it was a communal space for um not just the journalistic side but like when beyonce's homecoming came out or like when right. these epic moments within you know black community would happen we would all like share in them together and i think uh Insecure, I think, was the one TV show where every Sunday night, if you got on Twitter during Insecure, it was just like one of the best moments for five straight years. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. It's a Twitter, live tweet a and live discuss it. <laughs> I,
3: I mean, I'm I'm doing the math on your profile um, and uh, it's you've been on Twitter since you were 25 years old is what I'm guessing. And um, so almost all of your adult life. Um, do you remember how you got hooked? Like, or was it like right away or did it take you a minute? <laughs>
1: Twitter was an interesting app for most of us. It was like, and we used to tweet about it many, many years ago. Twitter was the one app. It was like, you would start on Twitter. You wouldn't fully understand what it was. So you would hate Twitter. (laughs) Then you would maybe most of us like six months to a year later came back to twitter and then it was like oh i love this like this is my favorite thing to do now um i think many of us had that very similar journey of like when you first got on it was like so am i supposed to follow people or people supposed <laughs> to follow me what exactly am i supposed to talk about all day on here like it was one of those things um and you know when twitter first started it wasn't as uh about movement work and uh, about crowdfunding and about like many of the, the great things that the app, you know, over time became, Um, it really was just like social commentary on like television shows, Um, just like your daily thought while you were sitting at work. Like um, I know some people still have them come up, like the horoscopes, like your daily horoscopes. Like it wasn't like this huge thing. It was fun Um, rather than so. It's like something you just would do to be like, how do y'all pronounce this word? Or how do you, you know, like did like little things like that. And then I think it now has become, you know, something much more powerful.
3: Is it um, still fun?
1: Uh, some days. Mm. <laughs> I enjoy Twitter. Like, I think, you know, I think the good thing about Twitter is that you do get to curate your own timeline. So if you follow people who are, you know, nuanced thinkers and are funny and um, non racist, non-anti-Black, non-homophobic, non-fatphobic, non- then your timeline can look pretty great every day. Um, but I think, you know, especially when I was a journalist, there were times I had to follow people that I could not stand because I may have to report on these people. And so um, you could see a lot of the vitriol um, just daily uh, from it. And especially now, since um, yeah. we are we are bowling with no uh, bumper rails at this point. Um uh, yeah. <laughs> uh,
3: yeah. We're, so we'll get into to the, the changes now and what they mean for everybody. Uh I want to, you know, your memoir, as I said, uh All Boys Aren't Blue, it's a series of essays following your journey growing up as uh, uh, as a queer black person. Um and after critical acclaim, it became the target of challenges. Um and was one of, I believe was on the list of one of the most banned books uh in libraries over the past year. Um yes. and one of the things you did in response uh, is encourage people to find you elsewhere, including on social media. And I guess I kind of wonder um, about Twitter in that regard. If that is that indicative of your relationship, that it's like a place you can't be censored?
1: Why well, is a place that I feel like, I mean, they're still censoring. I always say, you know, uh, freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom of consequences. So it is still about, one, being censored from a, a social standpoint, but also being able to censor yourself, which is probably why I have so many drafts of tweets that have never been tweeted. Because Bless you,
3: your heart. Drafted you,
1: tweets. This is the, what you, we need more like of. You write them, because you write them and then you're <laughs> like, you know what? No. And you just hit cancel. So it just goes into a draft folder. So every now and then I look at like what I was thinking on certain days <laughs> <laughs> in my draft folder and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm glad I didn't say this out loud because like, not that it was a bad thing it just would have caused discourse right. and I didn't have the the time to to even uh deal with it but I think what I liked about Twitter was that especially like having my memoir be so uh, challenged and so banned, Um, it also showed you who I was as a human. So Mm -hmm. the videos of my mom, my family, you kind of go through the grieving process with me of when I lost my grandmother three years ago, who's very influential in the book, Uh, but also when I lost my older brother just uh, a few months back, who's also in the book, right? And so like people um, through Twitter have been on a journey with me from when I was writing free articles for, I believe it was like HBCU.net back in 2014 to when I got my first, you know, major headline in Ebony to. When I had to be a part of the people who sued Ebony, so <laughs> where, <I> <laughs> where, I am now as this. New This York was Times for
3: guy. Ebony not paying writers is for, is the reference here, yes. uh, which a big conversation on Twitter. This was one of the organizing moments of Black I mean, Twitter it was. was when Black writers started saying.
1: There got us to to being able to find legal the because literally, like Twitter was like um, it was the writers union who saw what was happening and was like. Wait a minute! What's going on? Like, and started reaching out to us. So, Twitter literally helped us to to you know get what we were owed. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, but I think what I liked about or what I still like about Twitter is that people who have been there from the very beginning and others who go back through my work, they can see like, oh, wow, like this was an actual journey. Like George is not an overnight success. Like mm-hmm. it, it took 30 something years to become an overnight success. And Twitter chronicles what that looks like.
3: Well, and also I just to underline, I really like this point that when you became a, a, an item in the culture wars, that you were able to be fully human because there was a document of yourself in the world beyond the one that was being presented about you. Um, that's so interesting to think about. We just finished a conversation with two members of the Exonerated Five, um, and I think about them in 1989, if they had that, um, if they had that kind of platform, might how might the, the conversation been different? Uh, Let me bring in another person to this conversation. Karen Atia is a columnist for The Washington Post, and she wrote a column last week titled Why I Am Not Leaving Twitter. Karen, welcome to the show. Hey, Kai. Thank you for having me. So, Karen, it strikes me that even the way we talk about and gather on Twitter is so much more explicitly tied to personal identities and communities than other social media. I mean, we call it Black Twitter, right? Uh, I don't—maybe mm-hmm. I'm going to tell it myself, but I don't—I never hear of Black Facebook or Black TikTok or whatever. Maybe those exist. I know. Everyone's going to tell me I'm out of touch. Um, uh, and, but anyway, for, and many other communities have version of the same things, these intra-community conversations. But for people who don't use Twitter, and we must remember there are many, many, millions of people who do not use Twitter. Um, help us understand, help them understand for you what you mean by Black Twitter and why it serves you.
2: Yeah, man. I mean, I how long have I been on Twitter? Um, since probably 2011, 2012. So it's been a, a solid, like a little bit more than a decade and even my reasons for joining the platform i mean i wasn't even quite a journalist i, I joined the platform because um actually i was re- i was uh, doing a project in ghana and africa and actually the ghanaian journalists were using it to to curate information about the elections that were going on um in 2008 or 2009 or so so i I got on Twitter because I, I left um, and came back home, and I felt kind of isolated in small town Texas while I was trying to figure out what to do with my life. So I joined Twitter because I wanted to feel less lonely and I wanted to still keep up with um, my friends and, and the people that I'd met doing the work. So for me, it, my use of Twitter has always been rooted in community and connection. Um, just to other people and, and keeping, keeping myself informed, particularly actually about um the black world, including Africa. Um And, and so I, that is, it's a, it's kind of a core foundational, my connection to the platform. So it's the, now that I'm a journalist from, you know, 10 years later, I mean, yes, of course, it's expanded into, you know, having to keep up a presence and um, engaging in sort of public discourse and all. But, um, you know, like you guys are discussing in your conversation just now, I, I have just I, I've, I've learned about my own self as a Black woman. I remember back in maybe it was like 2010, kind of when the natural hair movement was taking off and, um, you know, black women, we were deciding to ditch the perms. And I remember, I think it was every Sunday, there used to be a hashtag, like a natural hair chat, um, on Twitter and we would, um, black women, we would gather use the hashtag and we would talk about what our hair care routines were and how to like take care of our hair. Cause at the time there wasn't as many like products as there are now for, for us. And so I legit like learned how to take care of my own hair from strangers that I'd never met on Twitter and YouTube. Extremely and and especially I think I think as a as a black woman. Um, And so those are those are the the memories that I have, and and, you know, not just hair, but you know, obviously, um, just education. Honestly, like Twitter has been a free education in all sorts of things um and you know as as you guys are talking about the um black history black politics the black stories and narratives that just are not covered in the mainstream media and so for me um i use twitter to a certain extent to like um, be able to educate myself and and then try to bring those perspectives into my work as a more mainstream journalist. So it's yeah. pretty indispensable for yeah. me, both as a normal person and uh, and a journalist, as, it, a, as a Black woman journalist.
3: And given that, Karen, and we're going to have to go to break in a couple of minutes, so, so just to get the conversation started on this, I mean— So there, as I can imagine, a lot of anxiety about what's going to happen next on this platform for something as intimate as the both of you are are describing. I mean, are you, I I understand you're not leaving and we're going to talk more about why, but are you concerned about the direction of the platform now?
2: I mean, I, even when there was discussion that the, a couple of weeks ago that the site wouldn't survive past like two weeks, I I think I legit went into a grieving process, honestly. Mm. Um, and it was because it would be a loss of that community, you know? And so, yeah, um, I am concerned that one day we'll log on and, uh, we just won't be able, the site will be nowhere to be found, of course. Um, but for now,
3: still on the ship. But short of its actual disappearance in terms of a change in what can happen on the platform, do you feel the conversation, the things you're getting or you're still going to be able to get?
2: I think so. And I think it's because my timeline I've curated over the years to, you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm looking at and, and listening to, you know, black Twitter, academic. So I think I've curated kind of an experience for me that, um, and so far they're staying. So, uh, these voices are staying. So, but I, yeah, I, I, I worry, obviously, I, I do worry, um, but I think to a certain extent now is the time that I'm trying to, uh, those connections that I do have, make sure that they're solidified and here's my number, here's my email, <laughs> you can find me, you know, just in case we all gotta be uh, scattered, you know, across the digital universe. Again.
3: I'm talking with Washington Post columnist Karen Atia and George M. Johnson, author of the best-selling memoir All Boys Are Blue, about Twitter. Should we stay or should we go now? And we want to hear from you. If you found joy on the app, have you decided to stay or are you getting out? Either way, why? And, you know, what do you think you'd lose if you had to go? More after a short break. Hey, everyone. This is Kusha. I'm a producer. Earlier this month, my colleague Tracy Hunt came onto the show to chat with Tressie McMillan-Cotton for a piece called Who Gets to Be Beautiful in America? It's a wonderful piece. I really encourage you to check it out if you haven't yet. After the piece, we got
0: this voicemail from a listener.
5: I really appreciated your episode on Who Gets to Be Beautiful in America. My name is D'Affrey Kuku. I'm a Black man who teaches business ethics and sustainability in the UK. And even though there are so many people of color here in the UK, there's not a cohesive, visible Black community such as there is back in the United States. And so I'm always shocked at the ways that Black American culture really, in many ways, is spearheading what many people around the world see as democracy, pushing the world towards democracy. And no greater episode was that seen when you spoke about what's changed since 2020. Well this is something that's also changed about the world since 2020. A black chick can say, you know what, I'm tired of not feeling beautiful in a hegemony that says beautiful is still madonna's blonde blue-eyed ambition tour from way back in the 90s thank you very much for your show i love 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 notes from america and we love you kai Wright.
3: Thanks, thanks and for everyone listening keep sending us messages you can record and send us a message right from our website the address is notesfromamerica.org. just scroll down a little bit through the page and click the green button that says record now all right thanks talk to you soon Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Vosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts.
1: What do you think would be lost if Twitter didn't exist, if anything?
4: um, uh, A lot of people wouldn't be copying black culture, especially all the trends that's happening right now. And a lot of non-people of color wouldn't be living an exciting life if they are now. Yeah, it, It'll stop giving them free passes to steal unless they're gonna work extra hard to steal from us. Just like, you know, Bring It On and how they went to a whole different neighborhood to steal a dance from ghetto girls, quotations around that to go to the championships, so we all know when they they don't have access to us like that it'll just make it even harder for them to emulate everyone goes to black twitter even non-people of color go to black twitter or it somehow passes their page everybody retweets it like the whole world runs off of black culture let's just get straight
3: to the point it's notes from america i'm kai wright and we're talking this week about twitter Since Elon Musk took it over, many of the people who invested the most in creating spaces for themselves and their communities are debating whether they want to stay or go. And I'm joined by two people who are mainstays of Black Twitter, George M. Johnson, author of the memoir All Boys Aren't Blue, uh, and Washington Post columnist Karen Atia. And to you both, I shared that clip as we came back from the break because it is so Twitter to me. It's like, asked a straightforward question about their relationship to the app. They use it as a chance to, like, subtweet at cultural appropriators on the app, which, you know, is just, I don't know, it's funny to me. But it's also to say Twitter does seem like one of the places where race and racism is most openly discussed in our society. And, you know, I'm not saying for better or for worse, but it is an open conversation in that space. I mean, do you agree with that? Let's start with you, George.
1: Uh, an uh, open conversation? Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> I, think a, I think it's a conversation. I don't know how open the conversation is, um, because a lot of people, you know, unfortunately on Twitter, um, we oftentimes run into people who lack nuance in these conversations. Um, and Twitter at times can be a hindrance, unless like you're really going to do the work to like do like a really really long thread to explain something. Most people try to put like too much information in one tweet. And then it just creates a war of what was meant. What, this is why I was trying to say this. I didn't really mean this.
3: And so no, it's not a very good conversation. It's is not point.
1: the <laughs> best. Yes, I don't think it's the best. I think what happens though, is I think like a lot of times like great conversations that maybe start on Twitter then become other things. As you said, like when uh, the first conversation you had was with the exonerated five, right? Like how that started from a, a Twitter, right? I, I, I do watch that happen more often than not where mm. Twitter allows you to take maybe a a tweet or a thought process or something, um, get it into the hands of someone who can put it in the right medium to give the full nuance and breadth that a story may need. Um, You know, it was also funny listening to the uh, clip you uh, played right before, um, primarily because I think people think that Twitter is a lot bigger than what it is. And as someone who has used Twitter, Twitter's a vacuum app. And I tell people that all the time because I'm like, it it makes you feel like it's a whole, like the whole world is on Twitter when realistically when they showed like, um, when they do like how many people are on each of the main social media apps, Twitter's like at the
3: it's, yeah it's small it's really
1: small um in comparison to how many people actually use social media um and so you know i think and i think we've also watched like the shift of theft of culture come from tiktok more than, mm-hmm. <laughs> than twitter these days um so yeah um it, it's it, it, it's still a place of open conversation per se and where we can still share our thoughts and share our mind but i and I'm also like encouraged by the fact that like there are other apps now like TikTok, like even Instagram Reels um, and other places where uh, we can expand the not just the reach of what we're trying to get done, but also expand our voices um, in a way that's a lot different than I, I feel that then the limitations that Twitter sometimes also had.
3: We got a tweet. Someone says, hi, I'm still on Twitter because the other options seem not great yet. Also on post, but it feels very white. What I would miss about Twitter is Lebanese Twitter, as a Lebanese American, and getting to know people not like me. Um, and Karen, what do you think about the other—you I, 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 can respond to that, but also, what about the other options beyond Twitter? Um, is it as simple as all these things that you've described in terms of um, the, the, the wonderful things that you're getting from life, setting aside the work stuff, just the personal, intimate stuff— could, is it as simple as like move that to a different app, or is there something specific about Twitter that allows that to happen?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Twitter's design and is
3: uh,
2: it's basically you know, and for better or worse, I, I sometimes I wonder, I don't know how great it is, you know, to for the endless scroll of doom, right? Like you're you're going through Twitter, and you can you know hop from a tweet that's like you know about a terrible horrible um war somewhere going on um and then the next tweet is about like you know lace front wigs i don't know like it's just like the (laughs) switch um it's just like a bit of like digital whiplash sometimes Mm -hmm. but i think that that means that you really get to see kind of the um everything like the the breadth and the width of of Human experience in a way, um, and you know, like I said in my op-ed, where I can see a, a tweet from um, the CEO of a company um, or a company having to respond to um, complaints, you know, from customers, or I can see, uh, I can see an academic right um, engaging with somebody from um, the community that they're studying stuff like that. Um, so I think, I think it's. I personally, I would say, haven't really seen in the other platforms the opportunity from people of so many different communities, whether it's institutional communities, industry communities, um, uh, you know, scientific communities, like, that we all share that same kind of visual space. Um, Mm -hmm. As far as the other... (laughs) I mean, I love Instagram. Um, TikTok, like, I'm just like, I don't know. I'm a bit of a geriatric
5: millennial.
3: So, like... Well, we don't have to tick through them them all. It's more just like, you know, I mean, and I hear the point, right, that there was, in fact, something unique about this particular space that provided you, that has provided you and presumably continues to provide you the things you're looking for. Um, But let's do talk a little bit about some of the bad in that space long before Elon Musk. You know, um, Karen, you write uh, in your column that as a Black woman, you've had more than enough reasons to quit Twitter over the years. Uh, You describe it, quote, as a snake pit catering to the worst of human impulses. And I just think it's interesting the way... um, help others think, engage in the way that you are doing where it's, cause even as we've made this call out to our listeners, most of what we're getting is like, I hate it. I'd never be on there. <laughs> um, you know, uh, everyone seems to agree that it's awful. Um, uh, and yet it serves you. Um, and that's just an interesting balance. Hmm.
2: Yeah. I, I, in general, think about balance a lot. Like, look, I mean, I've been targeted, by authoritarian governments, I've been targeted by the French for commenting on racism. Um, I and I, I say all the time. I mean, you know, people who have followed my work will know that I um, was pretty vocal after um, Jamal Khashoggi, the Saudi writer, was uh, killed in Istanbul. And you who know, was your colleague, and
3: uh, and you yeah. were his editor, correct?
2: Yeah, I was his editor and so of course, you know, and I still continue to be vocal about about his case. Um and for that, I mean, I was just hit with months of just bots and right-wing groups um saying all sorts of vile things. And um and I tell people like they're like, "What are you afraid?" I'm like, "Uh, ah, I mean, it was it was rough, right?" But honestly, I feel the most afraid, I think, on Twitter, when I'm speaking about racism and white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And that's when I feel like, A, that's where I feel like I can speak and then have that sort of black community behind me in a way. Um, But it also, yes, um, exposes me to a lot more abuse. And I think there is a study that was done that um, 80... Black women receive 84% more abuse on Twitter than, say, white women do. And um,
3: Well, but this is interesting, too, Karen, because the point, you know, as people are saying, right now, uh, abusive language is spiking. um, And um, that seems to be one of the main concerns is this change under Elon Musk about what is going to be tolerated. And you are already in a category of people who are most targeted. Um, and so it's just interesting to hear you say, eh, you know, but I'm not, I'm not going to go.
2: I mean, my mute and block muscles are quite strong <laughs> um, at this point. Um, but I I agree. I I practice my own kind of digital self care tips when the heat gets to be too much. And look, I mean, if it it could be the case that it could really become really quite bad, and I might have to reevaluate um, my choice to stay. Uh, but I guess to a certain extent, I'm just, I've been used to the hostility, right? Like I, I just, this is just what it means to be <laughs> a black woman on the internet. And, and, um, and there are so many more resources now to help us and to help our, kind of to push our institutions
3: to be more mindful of this, right.
2: but I get that. And I'm, I'm still cautious,
3: George, you're nodding along. Um, you are also amongst the most targeted groups uh, as a queer person <laughs> of color, um, and um, you know. And I've heard you say that you've had people weaponize your HIV status against you in an argument.
1: Yeah, um, which is why I'm wearing this my HIV Lives Matter uh, hoodie today. Um, yeah, they will weaponize anything. Like they will, they will, they will come at you with any type of thing that they think can get under your skin. Um, You know, and even more specifically, like not just being a queer person of color, I'm a black queer person. And that that increases the uh, the stakes or the the rhetoric or the vitriol that we receive, uh, because as. I have said often, you know, even though black people may fall into the category of people of color, people of color don't fall into the category of always being black. And they treat us just like some of them uh, white counterparts. And so the 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 heat that we face uh, at that intersection yeah. um, at times can be even worse uh, than our just LGBT counterparts. Um, but yeah, I've had any, anything can be weaponized against you. You know, people will talk about like deaths that you had in your family. Like, oh, this person deserved to die or you deserve to die. Or, um, you know, this, this is part of the reason that, you know, you've been punished with HIV. And, um, you know, like it, it's, it can be a toxic cesspool. But I guess the other thing is I'm kind of like uh, where Karen is at with it. I'm like... After a while, you just been through it. Like, you know, I've lived my life as a black queer person. So, like, I'm like getting run off the damn Internet. It's <laughs> not me, new. Like, We're like, if you are going to run me off the street in my actual day to day life, like I'm not going to just be run off the Internet. And I always tell people, too, I'm like, listen, like, you got to come with something real, real good to get like really under my skin nowadays. Right. Like my books, technically the second most banned in the country. Um you know, I, I, I've been called a lot worse, and that's all. And so, like, you know, that type of stuff that's online... And I'm with Cameron, like, the block button works very well. The mute button works very well. Um
3: Can I ask you to respond to, I mean, so as somebody who is, in fact, the victim of censorship from a government body, which is, in fact, an attack on free speech, that's actually what free speech is about, Um, I would just be curious to hear your response to the idea that Elon Musk has put forward that... um Uh, He needs to protect free speech on the platform by allowing um, uh, any kind of speech. Um, And I just wonder what you have to say about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, but we just watched him suspend Kanye West, so it it just doesn't the 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 notion of free speech in their minds doesn't add up because there's always a line that gets crossed that it's like oh that's but well, no you can't say that so then it's like well what exactly are you trying to get at when you say free speech? What they're really trying to say because they're not just saying you can just say anything; they're just saying that there are certain. It's almost like if if black people could. Talk talk about racism, then white people should be able to be racist, publicly.
3: <laughs> that's the idea. That is, in fact, like, that's
1: what the idea is actually what he's he's trying to say, right? Like if, if you all can call people racist, then racist people should be able to be say racist. racist things, right? And be racist. I think that's actually what, what, what he's trying to get at. But what then ends up happening is that there is always a line <laughs> that gets crossed where Other people come in who are also the investors, the money, the advertisers, who are like, Um, absolutely not. And then it's like, oh, didn't realize, well, we got to cut some of this off. And so I don't think he actually understands what free speech is. I may not care.
3: I may not care. uh, I want to sneak in one phone call because we're getting really close to time, but I do want to at least get one of our listeners in here. Uh, Chloe here in Harlem in New York. Chloe, welcome to the show. Thanks so much.
2: Yeah, hi. I work with um, a lot of faith leaders around the city and um, uh, the Interfaith Center of New York, and we are um, constantly a little bit concerned about not so much what's happening, the implications of what's happening online, but like the implications of what's happening offline, when hate speech rises online, and we see all that with the Asian um, hate speech attacks, we see mm-hmm. that with anti semitism, we see that that there is a correlation between speech and attacks on people around uh, the city and around the country and the world, for that matter. So, what my question is to the panelists: like, given that Elon Musk clearly understands one language, which is money. Don't we have a moral responsibility in some ways to speak to him by, you know, voting with our feet when he starts to create an environment right. where, you for, know, it's dangerous.
3: For time, I'm going to leave it there, Chloe, so we can get to the answer. And Karen, you spoke to this specifically in your column. So will you? what's your response to that?
2: Yeah, like I said, nobody was talking about boycotting and, and protesting with their feet when we were being targeted all those, you know, all those years ago, even even two years ago during the Black Lives Matters protest, the level of abuse was insane. I think what's happening now is because we're seeing the open anti Semitism and because elite men <laughs> are feeling um threatened, liberals are feeling threatened, um, that all of a sudden there's a four alarm fire. But again, it's been a four and a half alarm fire for black folk, LGBT folk, women on this platform for a long time. So
3: We'll have to leave it there, Karen. Karen Atiyah is columnist for the Washington Post and George M. Johnson is author of All Boys Aren't Blue. We'll be back with you next week. Notes for America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or you can find us at notesforamerica.org. We are on both Instagram and yes, Twitter at noteswithkai. That's notes with K-A-I. Milton Reese was our board out for tonight's show. And our team also includes me, Kai Wright, Karat Frillman, Raheem Nassa, Kusha Navadar, Regina DeHir, and Vanessa Handy. Music and mixing by Jared Paul and Mike Kutchman. Thanks for tuning in tonight. And we'll be back with you next week.
0: Notes from America is supported by the Innocence Project, working to free innocent people from prison, prevent wrongful convictions, and create fair, compassionate, and equitable systems of justice for everyone. More at innocenceproject.org. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy, beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.